Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now the New Living Translation puts the second half of that verse. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. The consequences of forgetting this particular truth are devastating. And in our text today, Joshua 7, 1 through 8, 29, we see a real life illustration from the history of Israel of what it looks like to forget that the Lord sees all and that all men without exception will be held accountable to him by him for all that they do. Now with that in mind, we'll read We're going to read 7, 1 through 15, then we'll skip to 19 and read 19 through 26. And I want to give you my one-sentence summary of the entire passage, 7, 1 through 8, 29, uh, before we read the text. Sin among God's people brings the Lord's judgment, but obedience brings the Lord's blessing. Now hear the word of the Lord from Joshua 7. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan." O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say... Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes 
shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now we're going to skip down to 19. So in 16, 17, and 18, what happens is they obey the word of the Lord. The people of Israel come before the Lord by tribe, by family, by man by man. And so now we come to verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, it's discovered that Achan is the one who has taken the things under the ban. My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle of Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua. No, 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 excuse me, verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent underneath the sil- with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day. Now, that's most of chapter 7. So now we would enter chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Verses 1 through 29, those verses recount to us how obedience to the Lord in dealing with the sin that had contaminated the whole camp of Israel leads to the Lord's blessing when the people of Ai can no longer stand before the people of Israel in battle and are defeated. The account is a fascinating one. A total of 30,000 soldiers from Israel take part in the battle. Now, Joshua sends 5,000 soldiers to set an ambush behind the city. So 25,000 approach, approach the city. There are 5,000 behind. Knowing that the men of Ai and its king would be filled with pride because of their previous victory against Israel in battle, Joshua anticipates that when Israel's army fakes a retreat, the king of Ai will pursue. And that's exactly what he does. 8.17 says that not one man was left in Ai who did not pursue the Israelites in battle. So the 5,000 soldiers then who are set in ambush behind the city come, they capture Ai, they set it ablaze, and then the men of Ai are the first, according to the text, to see the smoke from their own city. Then, of course, the 25,000 who had approached and then faked a retreat see it as well. They turn, they slay every last man, who had come against them in battle, and they captured the king alive. Now the people obey the Lord by killing every inhabitant of Ai, 
Uh, That was last week. Pastor Jordan talked a lot about that. A great heap of stones is raised over Ai's dead king. Now, this is the second heap of stones. We just read about one, right? Another Canaanite, Achan, also has a heap of stones raised over him when he is killed. Now, one big theme from chapter 8 is obedience to the Lord's word. Let your eyes fall briefly on verse 8 and verse 18. These are both commands from the Lord to Israel and one to Joshua. Verse 8 of chapter 8. Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Then verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Now look at verse 26 and 27 in chapter 8 and their obedience to the Lord's word in both of those texts. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So to summarize again, all of 7-1, all the way through 8-29, single sentence, Sin among God's people brings the Lord's judgment, but obedience brings the Lord's blessing. So I'd like to draw three primary themes. One is technically build up to the text, and then the other two come right from it. The three themes are the Lord's faithfulness to Israel, one. Two, sin in the camp, the title of the whole sermon. And three, obedience and the Lord's blessing. Chapter 7, verse 1, if you find your place there again, it is a gut-wrenching verse. And it's totally okay if you didn't feel hit in the gut when we just read it the first time. So here's some help to let us all kind of get the weight of it. Listen to chapter 6, the last verse, read back-to-back with 7-1. And remember that they have just come from Jericho. The walls have fallen miraculously. They have experienced a stunning and sweeping victory over gods and their enemies. So the last verse of 6, 7-1. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Here's the punch in the gut. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Verse 1 is shocking. It's shocking, though, not because Israel sinned. That's per usual. Just go read Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's shocking because they sinned against the Lord, who had been so faithful to them. Let us just briefly recount some of the Lord's dealings with Israel up to this point, beginning in Exodus 2. So late in Exodus chapter 2, Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians. They groan and they cry out to the Lord. What does the Lord do? Well, he raises up Moses to deliver them from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. They see the ten plagues, they experience the Passover, and are eventually set free, only to be pursued by the Egyptians and led by the Lord to the Red Sea, which is not passable with 6,000 men plus women and children. What does the Lord do? He parts the sea, brings every single one of them safe to the other side, and then he kills the Egyptians behind them in the same sea that they had just crossed safely. Then they're led by the Lord to a place called Mara. There is no water. 
to drink. There's water there, but it's bitter. They cannot drink it. What does the Lord do? He provides water by throwing a tree in the bitter waters, making them clean and drinkable. Then he moves them to a beautiful oasis called Elim, where they have all the food and drink that they could ever want. But then they leave Elim, they go back into the wilderness, and eventually find that they have no food to eat. What does the Lord do? He provides meat one time, manna ongoingly for their sustenance. Then Amalek attacks them in the wilderness. What does the Lord do? He delivers them from the attacking Amalekites. Skip all the way to Numbers 20 in Kadesh. They find themselves again with no water. What does the Lord do? Well, he shows himself faithful again. He provides water from a rock for the entire company. And this is all without mention of all of the faithful deeds that he had done for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's Everything that we just read in some ways is being faithful still to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and countless others before the Exodus. Now we come to Joshua. We have a new generation of Israelites. They had heard, undoubtedly, on repeat, recounting of the faithfulness of the Lord to his people. And they saw much of it even with their own eyes. Moses is dead. God fulfills his promise to raise up Joshua as a new leader. He assumes command. He sends out two spies to Jericho. The king in Jericho finds out that there are spies from Israel in his city, what does the Lord do? Well, he gives them safe shelter by means of Rahab, the harlot. She also receives the salvation of the Lord. Then in Joshua chapter 2, the people find themselves again facing an impassable body of water, the Jordan River. What does the Lord do? Well, he certainly doesn't throw up his hands and say, well, I guess I can't fulfill my word. He is faithful. He causes the river to stand up, and the people pass safely through to the other side. Then the people come to fortify Jericho, which according to 6.1 was tightly shut. No one came out and no one went in. What did the Lord do? Well, we just heard about it last week. He miraculously causes the walls to fall and gives the city into the hands of his people. The point is God is perfectly faithful, perfectly faithful all the time. You could literally search every inch of the globe and read every book in human history and not find a single credible shred of evidence that the Lord has ever been unfaithful at all. Now contrast him with the behavior of Israel in 7.1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. The revelation given to us in 7.1 is truly devastating. Israel has been unfaithful to him, the faithful one of Israel. Now this brings us to the second theme, sin in the camp. Now recall with me that part of the covenant, this is what they've done, they've broken covenant with their faithful God. Part of the covenant that the Lord made with his people contains these words from Deuteronomy. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Verse 17, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers. 
That's part of the covenant the Lord made with Israel. Then in last week's text, the people were told explicitly in verses 17 and 18, the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. As for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. So sin in the camp. What is the sin? Well, just like even the garden who saw, desired, and took, ate the forbidden fruit, Achan, according to verse 21, he saw, he coveted, and he took from the things under the ban. In other words, he helped himself to some of the Lord's things. So what does this ban, we've, we've heard that word a lot, the ban. What is the ban? The Hebrew word for ban is harem. It means devoted to the Lord. It also means utter destruction. Those two ideas are intimately connected here in our text and in six and other places. The word always carries with it religious connotations, which is why when they get the things that, that Achan had taken, they come before the Lord, it says, that, it says oddly, right, that they poured them out before the Lord. It's offering language. One commentator helpfully says, the heart of the ban is the Lord's exclusive ownership, an ownership not subject to redemption. So everything in Jericho, all people and things, were the Lord's possession. Everything was to be destroyed except for the, quote, silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron, which were to be put in the Lord's treasury for his use. So Achan had literally stolen from the Lord. And therefore now the whole camp, which was promised in Deuteronomy, the whole camp is contaminated with sin. Because the covenant, remember part of the covenant said, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. That part of the covenant had been violated. The Israelites, of course, don't know this in 7.2. We know this. We're given this information. The Israelites do not know. They go to battle with Ai, and they're shocked at their defeat. The cause of their defeat was Achan's sin, Israelite unfaithfulness, and the effect was 36 dead men and a humiliating defeat which sullies the Lord's reputation and their own reputation amongst the other Canaanites. So now we come, based on that, to an inevitable question that comes up when you read this text. Why is all of Israel punished for Achan's sin? How exactly are we to think about the corporate nature of the judgment found in Joshua 7? Well, Pastor Jordan helpfully touched on this last week, this particular part, And we're going to dwell on it just a little more. Old Testament Israel, unlike the church, is an actual political entity. They were a nation and were treated together as a nation state. This is one of the major changes that occurs between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament people of God are not a political nation state, but are exiles from all nations gathered into local churches. And those churches are not explicitly political entities. So Israel as a nation was in covenant with the Lord not just one Israelite, collectively, they were in covenant with the Lord. And if the covenant is broken, it doesn't matter if one or 10,000 men specifically broke specific demands within the covenant. The covenant is broken. 
And until it is mended, until the sin is uh, rid from the camp, then God's anger will burn against his covenant-breaking people. Walt Kaiser, to just reiterate this point a little more, helpfully says, Achan was not acting merely on his own behalf. As a leader among the clans of the important tribe of Judah, he had stolen what God declared to be sacred and separated from ordinary objects. Such a crime was aimed directly at God and at his covenant. Some, by virtue of their position or office, can bring the wrath of God on their nation, community, institution, or group. Achan represented Israel as a leader of the clan of Judah. Now, because some of God's devoted things, his possessions, were in Israel's midst, God's anger burns against the camp of Israel because the whole camp is contaminated with sin. The Lord, we know, we say it all the time, cannot dwell with sin. The camp must be purged. And that brings us to our third theme, obedience and the Lord's blessing. So the first thing that they have to do is eliminate the things from the camp that were devoted to the Lord or under the ban. The things, according to verse 15, that are under the ban are now actually expanded to include Achan and all that belongs to him. Now the Lord gives very explicit instructions for Israel to consecrate themselves because the next day they're going to come before the Lord. And God himself will capture the transgressor. So the word takes in verse 14, David Firth writes, is unusual and that it more commonly means capture, suggesting that the Lord was engaging in warfare against the one who had sinned within Israel. So God is coming to make war on the one who had put his filthy hands upon his sacred things. Remember the encounter uh, with the captain of the Lord's host in chapter 5. Joshua asks him, who uh, I believe to be Jesus, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And Jesus' answer is no, right? Which is a strange answer. It doesn't answer the question. The point is that the captain of the Lord's hosts wields his sword against those who are not committed to him and for those who are. Well, Israel and all the instructions of the Lord about how to rid their camp of the things under the ban obeys the Lord. They stand before him, the culprit is captured, and Achan with all his belongings are treated as a devoted thing, just like all the other Canaanites and everything in Jericho. A true Israelite is one who is committed to the Lord. A true Canaanite is anyone who is not. And there is here a striking contrast between Rahab, the harlot, who became a true Israelite, and Achan, an ethnic Israelite, who is truly at heart an idolatrous Canaanite. But the results of Israel's obedience in the camp's cleansing, if you're just reading the text, brings a sigh of relief with these words. Verse 26 in chapter 7. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. So obedience leads to the Lord's favorable presence again among his people, which leads to a military victory against Ai. And it seems like the story of Israel's conquest in Canaan is just right back on track, right? Everything is good. 
that statement is both true and untrue at the same time. So Moses at the end of Deuteronomy and Joshua at the end of this book both explicitly say that they do not believe that the people will remain faithful to the Lord. Listen to an exchange between Israel and Joshua in Joshua 24. Israel begins. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And as it turns out, Joshua and Moses are correct. When I recounted earlier to you the Lord's faithful dealings with Israel as they encountered obstacles along the way to Canaan, I left out very significant details in almost every case. We kept asking the question then, what did the Lord do? But now let's answer the question, what did the people do? When the people arrived at the Red Sea, they say, quote, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. When they get to Marah, in the bitter waters, what do the people do? They, quote, grumbled against Moses. When they find that they are without food in the wilderness after Marah, what do they do? Quote, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then at Kadesh, Numbers, when they find themselves without water again, they say, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? We could go on and we could go on and we could go on. Israel was never truly or fully faithful to the Lord in their covenant with him. God's own testimony about them in Psalm 106, and this is way after they had our, our text in Joshua's time frame. Listen to it. God's own testimony. They did not destroy the peoples. Now remember, that's part of the covenant. You've got to drive out all the people. You've got to kill them all. Otherwise, what will happen? You will begin to serve their idols. They'll have negative influence on you against me. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. 
Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, this is still Psalm 106, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. So what hope is there? Right? If the only nation on earth that God lovingly entered into covenant with is totally incapable, revealed more of himself to them at that time than anybody else, and they're totally incapable of keeping the covenant, being faithful to the Lord, and sin rather than obey him, what hope is there? Well, we've heard it time and time again. I'm here to say it at least one more time. There is hope. There is hope. But it can only be found in one Israelite man. Jesus is standing in the temple treasury when he says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Every Israelite that ever lived, and you and me and everybody else who've walked the face of the earth, have sinned against the Lord, just like Achan. One thing that the Achan narrative clearly reveals to us is that we should die too. We deserve to death. We deserve death because of our sin and our unfaithfulness to the Lord. We're all obligated to him after all. But Jesus, who is both God and man, has taken the penalty for the sin of his people upon himself when he died on the cross, suffering God's wrath. And the reason for our confidence that he actually did, quote, always do the things that were pleasing to the Father is that the Father raised him from the dead. Jesus lived without ever breaking covenant with the Lord. Then he carried all of that righteousness straight to the cross and died, and he can give it to others now because he lives. Achan died, a sinner, still dead, a sinner. Jesus is alive and well and able to save to the uttermost. In fact, there's a better promised land that awaits all of us that's been promised by him to us if we will simply rest in him. Revelation. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. A little bit later in the text. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And here is a particularly sweet group, sweet sentence in light of the text that we just read. Achan, cleansing of the camp, sin. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So at least one thing that we can get from the story of Achan and Israel, their cleansing and their victory over Ai, it shows us that in the entire history of redemption, if you just keep going all the way through, only Jesus can save us from our sin. There is no other Savior. There is no other hope. One other lesson that we can learn from the text, and this one does hit very close to home for many of us, all of us, I would assume, actually, that are members of the church, is that a person's sin 
never only has negative consequences for themselves. It always affects those around them. That they're church members, it always affects, to one degree or another, the entire church. Paul in Galatians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 5 uses the same metaphor of a little leaven leavening the whole lump. The context in both cases is sin and the church. The plain truth is this. Failure to deal with known sin in the church invites the possibility of judgment on the whole group. And this truth is evident not just in the Old Testament, but it's very evident in the New Testament. Jesus himself walks in Revelation 1 among his churches represented as seven lampstands. Now the sight of Jesus causes John to be afraid. Why? He fell at his feet like a dead man. Why? Because Jesus is depicted in Revelation 1, 12 through 17 as king and judge. In the letter to the church at Sardis, Jesus explicitly says that there were some who had, quote, not soiled their garments. They walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There were some in the church that lived like that. Nonetheless, he promises to come in judgment if the church does not repent because many in the church were committing evil deeds. Just go read the letter later. The church must remain alert for evil in her midst so that she can purge herself of it. And this is deadly serious business. The church is here to help us all do exactly that. It's not all that it's here to do, but it's a big part of what it's here to do. Rid ourselves of sin. And those who refuse to repent are to be removed from our midst. 1 Corinthians 5.2 Discipline and excommunication exist to help ensure the purity and holiness of Christ's bride until he returns. And our hearts should swell with thankfulness to be members in a church which take these things seriously. <clears throat> All right, one final word. To, this was mentioned earlier as well. To the Aikens that may be among us who have yet to be found out, yet to be revealed. And this comes straight from Hebrews 4. And the only thing I'll say about it before I read it and pray is that it contains both hope. You can be rescued. You can be saved. Repent. Confess. But it also contains much reason for trembling if you refuse to do exactly that. Hebrews 4 beginning of verse 6 through verse 13. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he had said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we end where we began. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have 
to do.